What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Rapping with a Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Berkelhammer, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming Tim Herman. Tim currently resides in Northwest Ohio and has been keeping SPS since the late 1990s. His uh, first SPS tank was, as he says here, an intensely illuminated 40-gallon breeder that was actually featured in Mike Pauletta's book, The Ultimate Marine Aquariums. And that tank was also a Reef Central Tank of the Month back in October of 2001. So he is now uh, what he calls himself a coral hoarder with a, uh, 11, about 1,100 gallons of uh, Acropore-dominated reef tanks. And he also has a home business blending amphibian and coral propagation with amphibian conservation. So, Tim, you're going to have to explain that one there. But listen, man, welcome to the show. Appreciate you being on. Oh, thanks. thanks for having me. I'm uh, glad to be here. Hope I can be entertaining. Oh, well, I, I, got, I got plenty of questions for you there, Tim. And, and folks in the audience, thanks for tuning in. Please um, pepper uh, Tim with questions as we go through the uh, – the uh, the chat here between Tim and I, I've, I've got I've got a ton of questions, but we certainly want to take the uh, the questions from the audience and want to welcome some of the folks here I'm seeing right now. Josh, Josh Cole, great bearded reef. We've got Percy Adams. Thanks everybody for uh, for stopping by here. Hammy's Reef and uh, Braveheart Reefer five two five. Welcome everybody. So welcome. yeah, so. And, you know, there, there's another part of the bio that um, I probably should have um, talked about, <clears throat> and that is if, if you've ever been uh, on the, um, if anybody's ever been on the livestock selling forums on Reef to Reef, then you would probably recognize Tim Herman as Thurman, because that's his screen name. And uh, let me tell you, he's got some cherry stuff that he sells on that uh, Reef to Reef forum, so... We, uh, we want to kind of dig in a little bit in terms of how he likes to keep a reef tank and how we, um, you know, in terms of the equipment and his uh, husbandry and maintenance and all that fun stuff. And, and like, uh, like my past guest, I asked him to, to shoot, shoot uh, you know, video of his uh, system or systems, I guess, maybe Tim, maybe that's the uh, plural versus uh, system. And so we're, we're going to do that, and, and Tim narrated during the, uh, the videos. We've got actually two videos because Tim's got so much to show that he only uh, he, he couldn't do it with just one video. It had to be two videos. <laughs> so we, uh, we're going to take a look at those uh, pretty shortly. But, uh, Tim, um, how's everything going in terms of uh, COVID and what have you? Uh, you and your family staying safe during these crazy times? It just seems like uh, it doesn't end. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a change of lifestyle. Uh, luckily, I was working from home before it happened, so the the shift for me hasn't been that dramatic. Um, but in terms of the kids and uh, and wife and everybody being home for months on end, that was quite uh, a little bit of change in my schedule and lifestyle. And now uh, I've got two kids that are distance learning from uh, from their school, so I manage that during the day as well as. Uh, all the other stuff I keep. Yeah, in a it's kind of like the new normal we got going on here, and it's uh, it's it's. Yeah. Um, I, I'd hate to say that you you know one can get used to this sort of uh, life, but hopefully it'll end sooner than later because uh, it's. Uh, I guess the one positive thing we've talked about on the show is that you know folks have more time to take care of their reef tanks, which is a good thing because they're home more. Mm -hmm. 
I will have to say, our, my travel has been cut dramatically this year, and I think all the corals are appreciating it. Everything's grown about as good as I can ever remember it. So, um, so let me, um, let me. Well, you know what, Tim? Before we kind of get in and talking about the reef tanks, so talk about the amphibian stuff because that's a um, that's a whole other piece of what you're doing there out of the sure. house. Yeah, I was uh, back when I was an undergraduate. And uh, I had that first reef tank that was in the book in the tank of the month. I was sort of at a crossroads, and I was my bio biology background is always ended up uh, knew I was going in that direction, but I didn't know which career path. And I was looking at either coral research or uh, amphibian stuff and zoos. And on paper, I looked a little more suited for the um, for the amphibian career. So I ended up getting a job in a zoo right out of. Uh, uh, right out of my undergrad. And so back in 2001, I had to tear down that tank and move to Ohio for that job. And it was actually, it was a dream job for a lot of years. I got to do a lot of, uh, a lot of cool stuff with amphibians and travel around the world and helping with uh, species going extinct and setting up facilities to help uh, sort of rescue populations and all that stuff. Um, and so out of that, we kind of rolled into, um, ended up starting a business as a favor to a friend up in Canada who uh, was probably the world's largest poison dart frog breeder. And he needed somebody to uh, import and distribute for him in the United States and hold the fish and wildlife permits and all that stuff. So uh, yeah, I started a business for him. While I was basically just to help him out when I started at the zoo. And uh, he hooked me up with some more people in Ecuador that do it just to fund, uh, fund the research and uh, conservation foundation in Ecuador. And they breed some of those poison dart frogs. So I import and distribute for them too. But, uh, yeah, and then uh, left the zoo after about 15 years due to a number of factors. And uh, now I still import and distribute for them. I breed some salamanders at home, mostly native species that go for some hobbyists, but a lot of research in zoos um, keep them. And, uh, yeah, and then I grow corals, too. And I'm still, I still dabble in field research and field conservation projects as people uh, – so uh, yeah. what takes up more room in the house, the uh, the reef tanks or the amphibians? <laughs> right. <laughs> I think the reef tanks do. Um, there's just a small room with salamanders, but uh, when I bring stuff in, I have to hold it. So one of those rooms fills up with frogs periodically. Uh, <laughs> got one coming up and, uh, later this month that should be. Keep me busy so did you uh, did you start keeping reef tanks before the amphibian stuff, or was it uh, after you um, graduated from college? Uh, it was. I was in college when that was all. I mean, when Reef Central started, that was kind of when everything really started to take off because there was communication about how to keep Backerpore alive, and suddenly, because even the books back then, you had uh, you know Julian yep. Sprung's books and uh, some of those older books. They, I mean, I was you know, chomping at the bit when Verone's three-volume set came out, and, you know, finally we could sort of identify some of the stuff we were keeping. But, yeah, uh, the amphibian stuff, I mean, it predated the corals just because I, I'd kept freshwater tanks as a kid, of course, and uh, even into college I had uh, planted tanks and was into the Placos and different South American uh, Cherisons and whatnot. But, um, yeah, it evolved into saltwater uh, in college, but I'd always kept frogs and whatnot, you know. Done some amphibian researches. And so, when when did the uh, when did the passion in terms of the reef keeping really start taking off for you? 
That's it. it was with that yeah. tank. I mean, I, I'm trying to remember back. I had like a 15-gallon tank before that 40-gallon. That would have been probably 1998, 1999. That was my first saltwater tank. I had a maybe a 30-gallon uh, freshwater going in there. And then I, yeah, so that 40-breeder tank was in a dormitory room at the University of Illinois. It was sort of apparently legendary because people could see the light all the way from the quad <laughs> where they're walking. This blue glow coming out of this dorm room. And I uh, I worked construction at the dorm, too. And I was like, you know, is this a problem? Like, no, oh, that's cool. Go for it. And they were looking at running circuits to my room so I could get more power through there. I had 880 watts running over a 40 breeder. I had Whoa. a 400 watt Iwasaki and, and four 110 watt VHOs. And it was, wow. yeah. I don't know if there's a, I think you can still dig up that thread on Reef Central about the tank. But, yeah, it was that was quite a quite a thing, especially back then. Cool. Well, we um, <clears throat> let's. Um, so I think probably a good way to start off here and really start digging in is to is to show the uh, the videos of your systems. And I know we're already starting okay. to get some questions here about your lighting and, and what have you. And we're going to definitely get to all that stuff. But um, let's let's take a look at the uh, at the first video, <clears throat> and then. Um, Maybe we'll watch the second one, you know, right after that. But uh, let's um, let's take a look at that first one. So let's, uh, I'm gonna roll the uh, I'm gonna roll the video here. Hello and welcome to my coral room, or rather the first coral room. So here I'll give you a brief overview of my main system. You can see it's kind of a sprawling endeavor. Uh, unfortunately, it was started as a small system and added on piece by piece over the years, so it has kind of a haphazard nature to it. Someday maybe it'll get an extreme reef makeover and uh, tidy everything up and put everything in a bit more organized uh, scenario, but right now this is what I work in. So virtually all the coral that I grow is in this system. It all runs back to that stock tank sump over there. Start there if you want and talk a little bit about equipment. Pardon the crickets and the running water sound. I do breed crickets in here for the amphibian side of my uh, collections, so I always get a little bit of cricket background noise. So you can see just a stock tank sump, which a lot of people have probably used over the years. I've got a Deltec skimmer there. Got the biggest Geo calcium reactor we can run, a master flex peristaltic pump feeding that, and many an EB8 laden with a spaghetti tangle of cords. Uh, so everything runs back to this. You can see we have two main circuits that run off of this system. Actually three. Uh, the first one is this loop of tanks around the perimeter of the room. Up at the highest level is this 180, which has most of the larger fish, probably has the most fish, maybe 20 or so in it. Uh, the big ones being a Moorish Idol, Majestic Angel, and a big fox face that keeps everything in control. Algae-wise, uh, we can see with some of the huge colonies I have. This tank was one of the last ones added to the system and just kind of a place to put huge colonies let them grow out and stretch their legs and uh, you know the acropora that have 
big thick branches really don't take off until they hit a certain size like that. So cascading down past this, we just have one of several long and low, roughly 12, 13 inch deep Acropora tanks. All the lighting's a little goofy right now because normally the lighting schedule is staggered to help with uh, stability of the pH. So some things are sucking up carbon dioxide and photosynthesizing and others are not. It evens out and keeps it a little more stable. Uh, again, I don't think I could talk about all the different Acropora I have. There's probably hundreds. don't even have a master list put together right now. see a lot of colonies. Most of them that I uh, grow and propagate are in the four to six inch range. They get much bigger than that. They really get out of hand and uh, you're dealing with an exponential growth rate that's a lot of cutting and more coral than you can really deal with, at least than I can deal with. Um, keep so much variety in the collection. A little bit of uh, all sorts of types of Acropora. This one normally has a lot more white on it, but I had to kick the lights on and make it blue right now. Just to the product of the various control systems. Uh, over here is another tank I tend to keep uh, a lot of the frags in or some of the stuff I'm interested in paying a little closer attention to. Maybe high value or high interest to me. Um, along with some of the uh, frags of those corals that are uh, growing out or going to send out to people that are interested in grabbing some of this variety of SPS from me. So I love it. Great colors. Um, one little odd add-on to the system I have down here underneath is a 40 breeder that's an overflow tank for the sump. Uh, as I started adding on uh, tanks, got to the point where in a power outage, which is pretty rare, I have a, uh, or a return pump failure more likely, uh, I do have a generator backing up everything, uh, but in that event where all circulation pumps go off, the sump did start overflowing, so I just added a little overflow spout there, that larger diameter PVC at an angle, catches it before it overflows and directs the excess water down in that overflow tank down there. There's a refugium full of ketomorpha algae and other odds and ends algaes. Uh, which probably does help in pulling phosphates down. And, uh, I'll go into more details about nutrients I think in our interview portion but this is just more of a tour. Again this is one of the later additions to the system. Uh, probably the last tank that was added to this room. Uh, this is one of two acrylic tanks in here and uh, this has the reef breeders lights I do use a whole lot of those reef breeders lights now. Uh, for a lot of years, I used DIY LEDs, and I still have some fixtures running going on 10 years. Uh, this is one of the older tanks, frameless, roughly three foot cube, or half cube, sorry. Uh, and it is lit by this guy way up on the ceiling with 20 degree optics. And this is one of the old style, uh, do it yourself, Cree, XRE based LED fixtures uh, with big fat heat sinks, mean well drivers, and uh, with those tight optics, I'm able to run it uh, about three feet off the water. Kind of adds a nice open feeling and an open effect to viewing the tank. Unfortunately, 
most of the time there are there is a lid on here that's a mesh lid to keep the fish in um, but every now and then like for this tour take the top off and you can enjoy it uh, i've got a few major colonies in here everything's kind of in a bit of an overhaul state right now trying to start some new colonies of different things over the years some things get overgrown some things don't do too well i have a whole lot of encrusting monopora which covers most of the bottom glass leptoceras this huge colony of Pasolopora varicosa uh, which is actually hitting the surface over there a lot of these corals have been in my collection for well over 10 years. Now the whole system started back in 2006 and uh, has, was moved in 2012 and has evolved from two tanks in that sump up to this kind of sprawling system I have now. So you can see there's one more DIY fixture there along that back wall. That was the last one I made before uh, some of the discovered the reef breeders with uh, the assistance of Adam at Battle Corals. Uh, he was a, kind of a proponent of them and really did a lot of uh, good trial and error with those fixtures and found out they did a great job of growing Acropora. So I slowly added those on and they did great. So I bought more and more and more over the years. So, all right, that's probably it for this room. Um, we can talk a little bit more about hardware we're not looking at corals, and uh, I'm just a talking head. All right. They, they shoot and way up. And we, we are Especially. back. We are back. All right. Um, so, yeah, no, Tim and I were having a conversation during that video, and I think we should, Tim, we should probably talk about what we were talking about uh, while everybody was watching your video. <laughs> because I think there was some... Okay. But uh, there's there's a lot of things to uh, to discuss here, and and so you know one of the things we were talking about was um, you know nutrient control and and you know the fact that you uh, use Cato you know and refugium and, and you know so essentially what you were saying to me and you could explain it more is is that you know for for a long time you weren't you weren't uh, really doing a lot of testing and you weren't reading any nitrates but um, yeah well just I guess to explain to me what uh, was going on with that system. Yeah, um, it's an older system. I didn't have a lot of uh, detritus build up anywhere. Um, every now and then, like I have one tank in the whole system that still has a, a substrate, a little bit shallow sand bed, and I get some uh, cyanobacteria build up in there. Um, and I'd siphon that periodically. But yeah, I could never get uh, detectable nitrates in the system. I didn't try dosing them, but I just never had any. And the phosphates kind of varied. Usually they're in the point you know, 0 0.1 to 0 0.2 range. Um, and everything seemed fine. I was like, all right, well, this is what people are watching now. People are testing nitrates and phosphates, but uh, whatever. I'm not going to waste my time with it. So I had a bit, but I'd feed refroids periodically and uh, had a bit of a spike, I think, due to heavy feeding of refroids in a short period of time. And everything seemed to be growing really well. I'm like, well, I better keep feeding because, you know. And I think I did it. I killed off some things with high phosphates, just a few corals. Most of the system was totally fine. But that was around uh, November, December of last year. So I started watching it closer. And uh, not too long after that, I noticed this uh, service called Aquabiomics. Um, he had a thread up about Adam at Battle Coral system and testing the bacteria in there. And so what he does is basically an environmental DNA genomic assay of every bacteria that he can test. And you have 
portions of what's in there um, in your water. And one of the most interesting things that came back on mine was that I had virtually no bacteria that break down ammonia into nitrite or nitrate. And I, that explains why I had no nitrate in my system because I feed pretty heavily. I have three or four <laughs> auto feeders now that dump uh, new life spectrum pellets in and formula two flake multiple times a day. And then I feed frozen and even bigger pellets, some bigger fish every day. Um, so there was definitely nitrogen going into the system. It was ending up somewhere. And I think what's happening is I just have so much acropora growth uh, that it's sucking up all the nitrogen in them as ammonia, right from the fish. And from what I've read, it actually corals actually prefer their nitrogen as in the ammonia form instead of nitrates. And so that might explain why I have such good growth too. And I don't know if it's something you can actually set up in a, a tank without. Uh, you know, I don't know how you end up with that equilibrium. It's just sort of something that builds up. Did you do time. anything as a result of the uh, the the test results or? Just kind of gave you more of a um, clarity in terms, in terms of what's of, uh, going on. The bacterial stuff. In terms of bacterial stuff, um, not really. I didn't change anything other than a, a couple times I tried dosing. I think just once or twice I tried dosing nitrate to see if I could build it up, and I had the corals did not like it. I started having you know things getting cranky and looking weird that clearly were responding differently. Um, so I just stopped that and. I still watch my phosphates. I try to keep them around 0.15. That's still but, pretty uh, high, though. You know, I mean, I 0.15, that, but yeah, which is high. Yeah, as fast as the corals are growing, they seem to suck it up. And um, as long as I keep it under 0.2 or so, everything seems happy. And so, you're, are you, you're you're still pretty much not getting detectable nitrate. Is that what you're um, still seeing? You're not. No, I have never had any detectable nitrate at all. No, um, and then in my uh, I did submit a, some. Did you watch the second video yet? I'm not sure if they've seen my. No, we haven't watched yet. that yet. So the backup system, yeah, it's it's a newer system, and I we just set it up less than a year ago, and I did send in a sample along with that one, um, just to see if I could uh, see what the bacteria were doing in there, because I set up with a lot of the rock from the old <laughs> system, and there's definitely never really stabilized quite right. Um, I have started dosing nitrates in that just to bring up nitrogen, but there's not enough fish, um, I think, to, to really feed the corals. In that yeah, in my 187-gallon um, tank, <clears throat> I've, um, I've been dosing nitrates pretty much from the get-go. And, um, you know, it's, it's a very mature tank. It's, I've got a lot of SPS in the tank. And, um, yeah, if I don't dose the nitrates, then my, um, my nitrates will get down to close to, to zero. So I, I, you know, I think it's that, that the same sort of thing that's going on with me is I'm getting a lot of, um, you know, it's getting absorbed by the, uh, by the acros and I even dose, um, mm -hmm. phosphate, not as much, but every now and then I have to dose phosphate and I use uh Kato as well. So it's, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, sometimes it could be a fine balance, but I think every tank is, is different. Right. And, but, but that's interesting in terms of being able to send a test out and see what kind of bacteria you got going on yeah. in your tank. I've never really heard of that before, but um, yeah, it's a very new service. I mean, genomic, I mean, DNA sequencing to enable identify that stuff is what very is, so. Uh, what does what does something that's, like that cost? If I remember right, it was like seventy-five bucks a sample, more or less. That's not maybe bad. 100, that's not somewhere bad at all. There. But, but for that kind of genetic analysis, that's not bad. I know he's had some problems. I just looked at the website before the. 
for I knew I might talk about on this interview, and he's having some delays due to COVID yeah. because all those, all my geneticist friends that uh, try to do that stuff, all the reagents are getting scarce, and it's really hard to sort a lot of the stuff that yeah, was, yeah, you yeah. know, the bread and butter of doing genetic work because they're using yeah. it all for uh, these tests. So let's um, let's run the um, <clears throat> the video for your backup system, the newer uh, system, and then once we got that. Okay. We'll uh, we'll talk. We'll dig even deeper in terms of um, you know equipment and um, other things that you do in terms of your tank. So let's let me run that video right now. Here we go. All right, I am back in the other coral room. Uh, this one is mainly storage of boxes and whatnot. This room, but uh, late last year, after oh quite a few years, 14 years or so of uh, the other system, I decided to add a second one to try and back up some of the colonies of uh, rare corals that I have. And just in case of a catastrophic failure in the other system, I had a uh, source here to uh, restock my system. Well, I am not going to talk too much about the corals in here because this is a newer system. It's been uh, kind of a rough few months of startup. Corals have lived. Uh, Aquapora, most of them haven't grown well and are goofy due to a lower nutrients in the system. It's a bit of a shock to them going from the other one, but uh, I will talk about the hardware in here because this is kind of the refined convergence of all the trial and error in the other room. Put into one system, uh, tidied up, uh, have a lot of raceway or uh, cord raceways there that contain everything. The, miles and miles of cables involved in all the light fixtures and pumps and uh, everything's just a little cleaner to look at so you can see what's going on so again i um uh, i did end up going with acrylic tanks in here all virtually identical to that middle tank in the other room uh, just because glass tanks got a little hard to find in a fairly close driving distance um and i found a guy less than a mile away who makes acrylic tanks I, business called Acrylic Concepts here in Ohio and uh, he delivers to my door and makes fantastic quality acrylic tanks. So I got over my fear of coral and algae on acrylic and have been using them since uh, with good success. So once again we have one long loop of circulation and a cascade of tanks for turning to the sump over there. We have a refugium at the top end so any invertebrate larvae or whatever that are produced in there end up feeding the corals uh, via gravity um, and aren't chopped up in pumps so they go to the corals. Uh, I switched over to using PEX on most of my return lines especially and most of my plumbing. Reusable parts, reusable plumbing are better for the environment, less wasteful and uh, less sloppy to work with. And can see again reef breeders fixtures uh, these are all the 50 inch fixtures paired up um, really cooking it gives me the option of you know getting 600 par maybe even 700 where they overlap in the middle so they really grow some high light corals and still have you know 300 400 at the edges or so uh, it's good enough to grow most of the aquifera uh, for circulation in here I have uh, been lucky enough to be friends with Carlos Chacon at uh, Coral View for many, many years, going back to the late 90s probably. And he's been a good source of information, and I have 
and supplying me with Coralview products and Max Beck. So here we have uh, some of those newer gyres, Max Beck gyres. Uh, these are the 350s. Now this is, I use gyres in the other room too, one at each end. You can see I have uh, flip-flopped the outputs so they uh, produce a current in, when the, in two different directions on the same pump. And uh, really that does a good job of creating random movements. So the pump reverses at this end and the water flows in the opposite direction out of the pump. And then it's on a randomized or variable cycle compared to the reversal cycle on this pump. So you get everything from a complete toilet bowl circulation to sharp contrasts in the middle um, or water on each side of the tank colliding, creating some really strong random currents in the center and everything in between. Uh, I've started using the, because I have so many gyres running in here, there's two, four, six, um, let's try it out the Hydros Wave engine. So far that's been a great device too for managing everything and uh, gives you ability to get rid of some of your power supplies and uh, control all your pumps pretty precisely. Got all my power supplies for the lights up there. EB8, oh, all the spaghetti is hidden this time. Uh, see if I have to look at it. And then going back here to the my major equipment, got a peristaltic pump, uh, one of the Ecotech Versus running this smaller georeactor, which is actually my old reactor from the other room. Alcatronic alkalinity monitor, new Apex in here. And uh, of course auto top off, a CO2 tank. The uh, good old handy carbon doser CO2 regulator, which is an essential part of your calcium reactor setup. So um, that's what I have going on in here. And uh, I imagine you guys will have questions or want to know more details. So talk to you then. And okay. we are back. Tim, a lot to talk about there. Um, one, Mike Gray made, made this comment, but I agree. The uh, look at the flow in that bad boy. So you, uh, it looked like a washing machine in, in some of those tanks there, I'll tell you. But uh, yeah, talk, talk about the flow yeah. that you got going on there and, and uh, why you have so much flow going through there, those tanks. Sure. And those are, they're on a program that varies quite a bit. Um, but yeah, so there's a max spec gyre at each end. I think I mentioned that in the video and reverse the propellers. And so they alternate on either side. So sometimes the flow is on one side and sometimes it's on the other side. And then they ramp up and down in terms of that. And then they also are on a varying schedule on either side. So sometimes it's really, you know, harsh contrast in the middle, harsh uh, collision of water in the middle, and sometimes just kind of a gentle flow. I think that's important. Corals do different things um, depending on the flow. Sometimes you can definitely put too much flow and you get weird growth, um, but yeah keeping them oxygenated and keep that boundary layer broken up and keep the water moving around is absolutely essential for uh, SPS. Yeah, you're, you're delivering, you know, you're not only are you delivering nutrients to the corals and whatnot in terms of the food that's floating around out in there, it's, you know, it's good for the polyp extension. It, it also helps keep the uh, detritus, you know, off the bottom. And that's another thing that uh, we're talking about while, while the videos are running. You, you pretty much keep up bare bottom tanks and, and um, you know, it's, that's, as I was saying to you, I've never done a bare bottom tank, but I'm going to do that with my new um, um, peninsula tank. 
so it's 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 a great way to be able to keep the detritus off the bottom of a um, you know of a tank and and my my whole um, you know thing is I love to keep brasses <clears throat> so on that tank I'm not going to have any brasses but I'll I'll just uh, I'll, I'll look at all the brasses <laughs> in my other tank in that sand bed but you know it's uh, I think it's something that um, if you really want to have crank that kind of flow going on in the tank and you want to be able to keep your system from having that um, old tank syndrome happening at, at one point down the road and it you know usually with a sand bed you you have to be careful with that sort of thing where all of a sudden you might have a tank crash because you've just got a lot of stuff that's been building up in that sand bed and you really need to uh, take care of that sand bed i mean i i have a lot of um you know i got the rasses and i've got um you know a lot of um uh, sand sifting i've got the uh, the sea cucumbers the, the tiger tail i think is what they're called sea cucumbers in my sand bed to, to try to keep that sand bed um um clean but you know, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done with the sand bed. But uh, talk about, you know, why you um, have you have you always been bare bottom, or did you, uh, you know, have sand in other uh, tanks? Or yeah, definitely. I mean, bare bottom was definitely not a thing back when I had that first dorm tank. I had a pretty good thick sand bed of varying grain size in that. Uh, I think I had a jawfish in there at one point. And then uh, when I first set this one up, I had sand again. And I just noticed after a while, you'd always get build up and you start getting patches of cyanobacteria flare up here and there. And it's kind of interesting on a system even as big as mine now with, uh, you know, 800 some gallons and decent amount of turnover, you can still get localized effects from a sand bed. So one of the tanks, I have one little 65 gallon upstairs that uh, just has some fish in it and doesn't have all the coral growth right now due to a landscaping overhaul. But no, it gets the same issues, and I'll have patchy um, sand bacteria in that if I don't siphon out the sand bed. So, in a, in a, for a long-term growth and care and stability, it's definitely better um, for my purposes not to have it. I do have some wrasses in the system. I've got uh, a few of the Halio Shiri's wrasses in bare-bottom tanks, and they do fine. They find somewhere to wedge themselves at night and uh, settle in pretty well. Do you well. find it takes longer to establish a, um, a reef tank if you go bare-bottom? You know, so um, in essence, you know, you've got the you know, the rock in there and it becomes live rock, whether I guess you start with dry rock or live rock, but, um, you know, without sand, you've got less places where the bacteria can colonize. So, um, you know, in theory, it might take longer unless you use, um, you know, some of those, um, um, bio blocks or whatever they're called in terms of helping to, um, promote the growth of the bacteria in the tank. But have you found that to be the case in terms of a bare bottom tank? It just takes a little bit longer to establish a tank or uh I haven't started enough tanks to know the answer to that question. My sample size is three, pretty much. So, um, yeah, I uh, I don't know the answer to that, but it does make sense. I mean, definitely more bacterial activity, and you can get anaerobic layers and stuff in spots that might take a while to establish. Certainly in dry rock. So, uh, Greg Carroll points out. Thanks, Greg, for making this uh, comment. You can actually keep fairy and flasher wrasses in bare bottom uh, tanks. So uh, that's cool. I'm gonna make. I'm gonna make note of that. I had, I had some flash, too. Yeah, I had flash grasses a long time ago. Yeah. So, uh, Tim, let, let's talk now about the calcium and, and um, alkalinity supplementation. You you use a um, big uh, calcium reactor, right? So, what what uh, what's the ra rationale behind uh, doing that versus two part? Well, that's pretty much what all these 
When I first started, um, I used some Bionic, I think, back in the day. That was the, the, one of the early two parts that was available. And I quickly, as soon as I got into SPS, I realized I would outstrip my demand for calcium in a hurry. Uh, it, it, like you say, it would get pretty expensive to keep dosing that. So uh, even though that 40 breeder, I think I might have had uh, George Weber's first <laughs> calcium reactor oh, yeah. ever. It had PVC fitting. Often it was, yeah, he came by my dorm room, I think, to drop it off and get frags years and years ago. Um, so that was the first geo. So I've been a geo reactor guy ever since. And, uh, but yeah, I've gotten to the point where in the main system, if I get more demand, I think I'm going to have to put a second calcium reactor on there because it's, uh, it's really close to maxing it out. I'm going through eight, eight to 10 pounds in media and a 20 every month and about a 25 pound CO2 tank every wow. two months. So, so um, what's, what's your, what are you running your yeah. pH at with the calcium reactor? What's your pH around? In the reactor, it's about 6.7. And what about the yeah. system? And the system varies a little bit seasonally. Um, the low end, it gets down to maybe 6.9 or so and the high end, maybe 8.2 with some fluctuation. You, I've tried the, uh, Notice in the video, I've got a couple of filters hanging on the wall with the CO2 scrubbing media I just tried recently. And may do something. I don't see anywhere near the difference in pH as if, like, the house windows are open or something. Um, wasn't really a noticeable blip in the system's pH. But I kind of underskim too. I tend to run things on the dirty side. Um, and uh, so I don't pull out that much skimmate and I don't relative to the volume of water that's going on in there, what's going through the skimmer is pretty minimal. And you don't, have, you don't have a ton of fish in the system, right? Not a ton, no. There's maybe 30, 30 or 40. Most of those are smaller. For, for um, like 800 gallons? You know, maybe for some, yeah, 800 wow. some gallons. So that's, that's not a big that's fish load. Yeah. No. So we got a question here from Mike Gray. Um, What's the threshold to say using two-part and using a calcium reactor? At what point would I say, okay, let's stop two-part and go to the calcium reactor? I, well, I can, I can answer that because um, I'm about on the, I'm, I'm the cusp of uh, doing that myself. I, I dose two-part you know, on my 187-gallon uh, tank, and I'm dosing close to 300 mLs you know, of alkalinity and calcium a day, 300 a day. So it... Um, it's not cheap. I mean, I'm not making my own stuff, so I'm, I'm using a, um, you know, a, um, a, 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 a brand that uh, is manufactured, and you know, so I'm actually making, considering making the uh, the switch myself to a calcium reactor just on, on expense alone. But uh, you know, I would think that um, people have great success with calcium reactors, like you do, Tim. There, and you know, my tank, I'm getting great growth with two part, but I've also had you know, kick-ass tanks with calcium reactors. So I, I, I think the, um, just depends on the circumstances. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Yeah, pretty much the same. Um, I've always been a little leery. I mean, there's potential for disaster with both, but I've heard of more crashes maybe with two part just because if it's automated dosing and something gets out of whack. You dump, dump a bunch in there and that'll nuke the system in a hurry. The worst thing that happens in the calcium reactor is usually you melt your media and, you know, it hasn't affected the system too much. It's just uh, made a big day of work for yourself, cleaning it yeah. out, <laughs> starting over with fresh meat. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say that's 
I've always been a reactor guy just because I've always known I was going to be growing a lot of SPS and sort of started. That's what I knew. So that's what I stuck with. Over so the let's, years. Um, let's talk lighting. Okay. So during the, uh, the video, I know the first video, you, you, uh, you were mentioning the reef breeders. Talk about that in terms of the, you know, the LEDs. I know there was a question early on before we started looking at the videos in terms of, um, I guess you had, you had been using um, HQI, um, metal halide HQIs, and, and you made the transition LEDs. Yeah, that was a long time ago. I've been all LED since probably 2010. Um, I I started before you could even get Cree LEDs. I started building fixtures with Luxions um, back in like 2008, just because it seemed like the way the technology was going, and mainly for efficiency, energy usage. And I I'm, I'm a cheap guy, so I don't tend to buy want to buy things more than once. And replacement bulbs is you know, pains me greatly. And, uh, you know, they're saying these things can last 10 years and, uh, you know, they use a fraction of the electricity. There's gotta be some way to grow corals with them. So I started putting together, you know, just my own little jerry rigged things and testing them out. And then there was this thread on reef central by a guy named Soundwave where he built this big, you know, those big honking sink heat sinks, just like my current fixture that I still have running there. And it's just a matrix of, uh, it was cool white and royal blue LEDs back then, and then we started working more colors in. But yeah, it's been all LED since then. And uh, I wasn't a, you know, see which works better kind of guy. So I was a, this is going to work, and I'm going to make it work. <laughs> kind of so how did you, uh, how did you, how did you end up with the, uh, the, the, with the reef breeders? So the reef breeders, um, again, I have to credit Adam at Battle Corals with doing the legwork on that. He was, I think he was testing out maybe even some of the beta testing on those. He had the earlier version. And I, I, was, I wasn't happy. When I first started building fixtures, you couldn't buy them because it was that old drama with PFO and some aerospace patent or something. Some aerospace company had a patent on using LEDs to light an aquarium. Yeah. They had legal battles over it. I don't know if you got you had to be around a while to remember all that stuff. But So you couldn't buy an LED fixture for an aquarium for a lot of years. And so you had to make your own. And that's what I knew, so that's what I stuck with. And then I saw you know, Radions and stuff. Some of those early fixtures started coming out, and then the black box ones. and Just kept building my own until finally Adam's like, hey, have you tried these? I'm like, no. I just built my own. And then the last one I built got so big and was so expensive, it probably cost three times what a, uh, you know, a reef breeder setup would. So that's what I decided I can take the few weeks of my life back and uh, just pay them to build it for me. And been really happy since. So, so, so uh, really no desire nice to check out the new uh, Radeon Fives or one of the uh, latest and greatest out there. You're you're sticking with what works. It sounds like. So far, yeah, I'm not one to change if I know what works and I'm happy with it. And why spend the money if I don't need to? Hopefully, I get another ten years out of these things. So there you go. <laughs> And by the time that uh, I did, I was intrigued by that plasma lighting. That doesn't seem to have taken off much, but uh, that was interesting too. But I don't, I don't know where that ended up. I haven't heard anything about it in a while. So we have a question from um, Hammy's Reef, and, and this is a good question. Do, um, he, he wants to know, Tim, do you dose anything for trace elements? I do not. That's part of the joy of a calcium reactor is virtually everything that's in the skeleton of a coral is going right back into your system. And uh, I do add a little bit of, uh, what is that, uh, Brightwell Neomag, put some of that in my reactor, and uh, it helps, it seems to keep up magnesium just fine. And plus whatever trace elements are in your food going in. And you, uh, so you mentioned before in terms of what you're feeding your fish, um, 
so nothing, uh, you know, just flakes you were talking about and some frozen and nothing real special there? So, yeah, a lot of spectrum pellets. Um, I do have uh, some Formula 2 flakes mixed into that, and then I make my own fish food just out of frozen uh, seafood from the grocery store. Sometimes I just buy the frozen stuff and thaw it and blender it and freeze it in flat ziplocs and break off a piece, mix it with nori and throw whatever's around in there. <laughs> I'll throw some reefroids in there. I'll squirt some, you know. I've got a, I've got a similar uh, stuff. similar recipe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, oh, there's no oysters this week. I guess we're not getting oysters in this batch kind of thing. And I'll make enough to last several months and maybe twice. So you mentioned um, reefroids. Do you... Any other coral foods that you utilize um, on a regular basis? Aminos? Do you do a dose of no. amino acids? There's the, they make that polyp boost, which I think is basically an amino type concoction as well. Um, and I, I kind of quit once I, I got a copper band in the system that eats only the frozen food, but at least it's eating prepared foods. So that's kept me uh, religious in my. Um, keeping up with feeding frozen because sometimes it'd slack off. And I think that constant daily feeding of it helps the whole system um, just in terms of stability. And since I've done that, the phosphates have hung right around 0.15 every time I check them. And it's just, you know, when I would think of it every three weeks or month. But, uh, yeah, so I haven't really had to dose anything. Um, we got a question from Braveheart Reef for 525. Thoughts on white versus blue light for coral growth? I think they're both important. I think you can get too much blue and you don't end up with the right uh, spectrum for the corals. Um, I, I do say, I do turn down the reds a little bit on the reef breeders fixtures and the, the whites a tad down to like 75% and run the rest at about a hundred. Um, I think too much red can be bad. I think there's some pretty solid research behind that. Uh, but in terms of white, I mean, they get, there's a lot of shallow water corals we grow and they seem to do well with it. It may, they may look nice and under straight blue with your glasses on, but I don't think it's good for their long-term health. All right, so while we're talking here, I am. Uh, I just want to show some of this eye candy that um, I grabbed some shots on, on Reef to uh, Reef. So this is a uh, the BC backdraft, and man, that's pretty. That's a pretty beautiful uh, coral in terms of the reds on that uh, coral and the orange and, and what have you is uh, striking. And then um, let's take a look at the Tyree Superman uh, Tenuous. I've had this coral. I lost this coral a while ago, but uh, that's about as blue as you can get there, Tim, in terms of the... Uh, that's exactly how I describe it. As you as think it's bluer than a uh, Oregon enough. blue tort? I grow them next to each other, and they're definitely... It's a different color blue. It's a brighter, just sharper blue that stands out. You can see, I mean, it stands out like a sore thumb in those videos if you scroll back... Uh, yeah, it's like, oh, there's a colony of the Superman tenues go by, and it's just this bright blue blob. And now we've got the uh, the Reef Rap Raven. That's about as pink, pink as uh, red as you can get in terms of that coral. And I think I saw yeah. that um, in, in the tank going by there. Probably saw that, yeah, that little acrylic tank. That's my colony of that. It's been a really solid coral for me. I've had mixed relationship with millipore over the years. Sometimes they stall out, and I just cannot grow them for the life of me. I had one I loved called the uh, Smurfette Millie. It was real nice, sharp pink like that, but with purple tips, too. That thing, cracked it a couple times, just stalled out, never got it going again. This one, 
for, for whatever reason, loves doesn't mind being fragged, and uh, it's been growing really well for me, better than just about any other millipore I have. That's interesting that you say that in terms of millipores, because I had I had that situation uh, a little while ago where where all of a sudden, like all the corals in my tank are doing great, but all you know for some reason the millies were not doing well, and I just yeah, you know, I could not figure that out in terms of why that was going on. It was like a mystery to me. It was like how could like you know everything else be great, but the millies. You're getting no polyp extension, and and um, you know they're just not looking happy. They're looking pissed off. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it is there is coral species are such a catch-all in terms of the taxonomy. There's not a lot of real genetic basis behind what they call a millipora, and so I think you're getting a hodgepodge of corals from all over. You know the areas that get collected over the years that all get called millipora, um, just like spatulata from Australia. Um, you know, was a millipore for a long time, and they finally decided to split it off. But I'll have a tank, you know, full of uh, maybe half a dozen spathulata that are growing faster than millipore right next to them. And you're like, well, they're supposed to all be millies, or even so within the millies, do well. Some they, I've noticed they just have to get big, and you can't cut them in, until they're, you know, hit that four or six inch mark, or else you can really set stuff back and stall it out. Well, Hammy's Reef said he just got a frag of that Reef Raff Raven from you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's beautiful coral. I won't. won't no, here's one. That. The uh, I think you said you lost this one. The uh, the CC kombucha. Yeah, that's a that is awesome. Freaking awesome, awesome tenuous. Beautiful indigo, kind of purpley color. With uh, the polyps can be pinkish or orange. You can get green in the base, but uh, yeah, really nice colors. Unfortunately, that was one of the most heartbreaking victims of my phosphate spike. Was, 2019 so i got a frag that's looking to it doing looking like it's happy and it's encrusting so maybe someday but it's one of the slower growing of all the yeah. tenuous for sure too. so um hammy's reef has another question in terms of how do you deal with pests like aptasia in particular mm -hmm. um mainly peppermint yeah that's shrimp. what i do too I've got, I've got a tahitian butterfly i've tried it's it's in that stock tank sump now um it started pecking its stuff but it, Pretty much, it eats zoanthas, just chow them down. No, I don't really care as much about zoanthas, so it'd probably be fine. But yeah, um, and I don't want them eating corals. Uh, my majestic in the big tank eats all of that Asia. That's an awesome fish. Yeah, I was going to um, say that's that's that a, that's something you don't see a lot in a uh, an SPS dominant tank. Yeah, there's an old um, spreadsheet on Reef Central that was like the definitive guide to reef safe angelfish and they went through and did a poll of all sorts of people um i will put a plug in there for reef central that has so many years of old communication before everything yeah. was quite so uh quick make a quick buck sell snake oil kind of a mentality in the reef hobby um there was a lot of just more rigorous communication the internet didn't have trolls back then <laughs> as much and uh it was just good discussion. And so a lot of those archives are full of just invaluable resources. And you can see that in the, like the viewing and some of the forums, the reef fishes forums is still just unparalleled. Um, but yeah, if you can hunt that down. So that before I got the majestic, I looked at that and there's really, really good chance of success with majestic, not eating corals, especially huh. SPS. I've, um, I've kept, um, uh, what's the, uh, the angel, uh, the regal angel in, in uh, SPS dominant yeah. reef tanks. And I've had great luck with uh, with those. I mean, they went after, you know, some LPS. 
So I think that's something that um, mm -hmm. you always have to be a little, uh, you know, make, you know, if you've got zoanthids in a, in a reef tank and you put a, a regal in there, they're probably going to eat those uh, zoanthids, but, um, yeah. or anything like soft and fleshy. But yeah, I love mm -hmm. angelfish. I have um, a couple of, yeah. I got a, a mass Japanese uh, swallowtail. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. I, I think the genocantha said really good. I think they were like 100% success rate in their survey. <laughs> SPS at least, but yeah, majestics, regals, and then I think they even did dwarfs in the survey. So flames and coral beauties and things like that. I've got those in my system too. I've got a, I've got a coral or not a flame angel that's still alive from 2006 as well. So that's a 14 year wow. old fish. Yeah, beautiful fish. Just had a, had a blue damsel that was even older that just died last week. Oh really? <laughs> it was a 14 year old. Wow. Yeah. Um. Tim, let's let's talk about rock. You know, when when you um, and it's probably been a while um, since you've started a uh, well. I mean, the new system you started was that. Um, mm -hmm. What did you use in terms? Do you use rock from the uh, from the 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 older system to to seed that? Is that how you uh, got that going? That that was the strategy. Yeah. So I had a bunch of um, Marco rock that I put in a a trash can for six months or so just with water from the other system to try and cycle it in advance and then I ended up swapping that in for a lot of the older rock from my main system so it was maybe half of uh, established rock and that main system I set up in 06 with Fiji cultured rock which I'd never seen before I was like holy cow this is great stuff um, and I haven't really seen it since uh, an LFS not too far from me had it and it was the most live live rock I've ever seen in my life. It had those colonial tunicates on it. I got two sea hairs on it. I got three different types of zinnia come in on it, tubapora, two different types of tubapora, just full of life. And uh, I think starting the system with that really put me ahead of the game, you know, years ago. And then, then all the rock since then has been, I used some like yellow tufa from a landscaping place near here, some of the base, and I'd drill it out and put a bunch of holes in it. And then the uh, some of the dry rock became available, so I've added some Marco. Over the but years have you ever so started? You, have you ever I've started had, a system with just dry rock only, or you've always um, seeded it with live rock? Uh, no, I really. Essentially, I've always had access to live rock back in the '90s, and then in 2006, and now, I mean, now the rock that's in that main system is just covered in sponge. It's as live as anything you're going to find. In the so ocean let's say part. you and your family move to a new house. And you had to get rid of everything that mm -hmm. you uh, have right now in terms of your collection and your system. And if you had to start brand yeah. spanking new, what would you? What would? What brand would you? Uh, would you uh, start with dry rock only, or would you try to like hunt down some live rock? I wouldn't start with dry rock only. I would probably start off because you still get Florida rock, right? Yeah, yeah. That's still yeah. I would use something from the ocean, and I would set it up just like that for a while. Don't keep corals. And then if, use at least maybe a third of that if you can afford it. And then uh, use some Marco rock. Because getting rock from the ocean is just unlike anything. And uh, anything that's not a coral parasite, you can manage. I mean, my system has bubble algae. My system has aptasia. My system has bryopsis. You're never going to keep right. that out completely. You run it long enough, sooner or later, one little speck is going to make it in from the water from a fish or something, and it's going to be in your system. So you're never going to keep it immaculate. And you just manage those with you know, animals that eat that particular pest. Um, 
So as long as it's not a coral parasite, you won't get those as long as you're not bringing in rock that's, you know, covered in zoanthids or something. And then uh, just quarantine all your livestock as you bring it in. You should be able to run a clean system and have all the benefits of uh, actual ocean biodiversity. Yeah, I've actually got um, I got 100 pounds of live rock coming on uh, Tuesday from KP Aquatics. And, and um, mm -hmm. so that's what I'm going to start my, uh, my new system with. And I, I tried starting my 187-gallon uh, tank five years ago with dry rock only. And it was the first time I ever tried to do that in terms of dry rock. And it was, did not go that well. But um, no. I know a lot of folks out there have, um, have done great, um, you know, tanks with dry rock only. It's just, I think it just takes a little bit longer to, uh, to do that. You have to have more patience. And there are certain, you mm -hmm. know, absolutely there, there's some great advantages with dry rock. You could sit there and you could sculpt that stuff for days and on end and come up with some really mm -hmm. cool, um, you know, escapes. And that's, that's a great benefit. But, um, yeah, I think I, I I'm, I'm totally uh, in agreement with you in terms of live rock. And I've said it before on this show that, um, you know, I think there's nothing better to have that biodiversity right off the bat and, and to really give that system a, a jump start. Um, but you know, Mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's a personal preference in terms of, um, you know, which way to go. But, you know, the reality of the situation is there's not live rock is not available like it was back, uh, you know, a few years ago. It's, yeah. it's a lot harder to come by. Yeah. Even that the calcium reactors are, that's got me worried because I used reborn two little fishies reborn calcium reactor media for years and years. And suddenly it's not coming in the past year or so. So I'm, trying to wean myself onto some other things and trying them out, but they definitely dissolve at a totally different pH and it's uh it's going to be a big transition if it, the supply doesn't pick back up. So we'll see. So I'm happy right now, but I, my system could go through some major uh, adjustments here in the next year or so as I run out. Just looking to see if we got any more questions from the audience. Satan Nova, Hey man, thanks for, uh, thanks for, for joining the uh, live stream. And I just want to remind folks out there that if they have any questions for, uh, for Tim, to fire away, I I still got a bunch of uh, questions I'm going to ask him. But uh, yeah, Tim, I think one thing we didn't um, I don't I don't I didn't uh, ask you before is in terms of you know so we talked about nitrates and phosphates in terms of what you kind of keep those levels at and and pH. But what about uh, alkalinity and, and calcium? What do you uh, shoot for with those? Uh, you know, we saw the alkatronic. What uh, what do you like to keep your alk and ca uh, calcium at? Well, most importantly, the alkalinity. Yeah, alkaline, calcium with the reactor, the calcium just kind of goes along with the alkalinity. So I keep it around, I like 9.2 or so. Um, I've noticed some things perk up. I was at, you know, the low eights for a lot of years. And uh, I think I had more issues with things like millipores that just did not like it. I may have had more success with some species like uh, Echinata, that Echinata, uh, Echinata, had that huge colony of ice fire. That finally just croaked after the clam did over the oh, next Oh, I got a picture so. of that clam. Let's let's yeah. look at that clam. Here we go. Look at that. That is one heck of a specimen right there. That uh, how big of a uh, blue squammy was that, uh, Tim? I mean, that's uh, oh, that shell. I think it's around 13, 14 inches. I got the shell downstairs still. Um, yeah, fully expanded. It was probably pushing twenty Man. inches. Uh, that that was probably sucking was, up a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, and honestly, I think that probably created this microenvironment of chemistry. It was right next to that big ice fire echinotic colony. That was probably, I mean, the phosphate spike happened later that year, if I remember right, or a little. Yeah, 
the following year. I probably went through some major swings and nutrients. Blue, uh, Blue Squamia is pretty much like the holy grail when it comes to uh, clams out there. I mean, I know teardrop, blue, like a blue teardrop is a, uh, is a clam that's a yep. very rare clam. <clears throat> and, and you can get those today. And I know that um, they culture, right, Blue Squamies. I mean, Live Aquaria yep. had a bunch of them for, for a long time. But I haven't really seen any mm -hmm. recently. I guess it just kind of depends on what's going on and what they're raising out, you know, on the uh, on the farms. Yeah, and that one actually, when I got it, I traded Xenia. Really? Product. There was a guy. There was a guy in town that had a, a little basement coral business going, and uh, he got some in. I was like, oh, that's a nice one. It, but it wasn't bright blue. It was gold with little blue dots oh, really? in it. And I thought, oh, eat one. And I traded him a bunch of Xenia because he could turn over Xenia, and. Uh, yeah, and I grew it. It was probably two and a half, three inches long when I got it, and uh, grew that big in the ensuing close to ten years. Probably. I tell you, it, it's um, it's it seems different these days with clams. I mean, <clears throat> you know, years ago I I used to be able to keep clams for years and and um, not have any issues. But you know, recently when I when I try to you know keep a clam in my system. It's just kind of like crap out after six months or ten months or or twelve months. It's it's just it seems uh, it seems a lot harder these days for some reason to keep clams in the system, and I'm, I'm not exactly sure why. No, and I have, my friend Carlos said, uh, yeah, he said never add a clam to the system with an established clam because it'll die, and I that may be what happened. I tried to add hippopus, I think, to the system, and they died, and then a few months within a month or two. That one spawned first, and then it went downhill and crashed, um, the big one. And I had kind of the same thing going again. I had a little blue one I'd gotten from a store in Indiana from a guy, a friend over there. And it grew up. It was growing great for about a year, and I tried to add a little gold one. The gold one died within a week or so, and then the blue one died. So it could be they bring in some pathogens, some bacteria or virus that uh, is contagious. Definitely, I think, if you can quarantine clams, that's probably the best strategy. Right now, I think I've got one upstairs that's an odd thing. It might be a Squamosa Maxima hybrid or something. It seems to be stuck small. A couple of folks doing well, but no big squamies like that yeah, one anymore. Yeah, no, that, um, that, that was a beautiful clam. But, um, Tim, one of the other things we haven't talked about is what you do in terms of maintenance. You know, what, what, what is your maintenance routine, like water changes? And, and, you know, what else do you do to your tank on a regular basis maintenance-wise? Yeah, I don't do a lot of water changes just because I move enough water through. I've never been a, that big a proponent of them, um, as long as everything's stable. I do move, probably ends up being about 100 gallons a month, uh, just in terms of various things, siphoning out gunk. I will siphon out all those bare-bottom prop tanks. Uh, if I see detritus building up, I'll pull that out. And so there's, you know, three or five gallons here, three or five gallons there. And you can see a really big, dirty, dark tank next to the refugium in the video. And that's just, it's a 100-gallon tank up on a stand uh, with the ball valve on a drain in the bottom. And I, for a while there, I actually had corals in it when I first moved into that house. But now it's just my salt mixing tank. And it kind of cracks me up when people are like, I've got this residue in my salt mixing bucket. And I've got, like, sheets of algae <laughs> blowing. <in> my... <laughs> Who knows what's in there, but... Uh, Throw a bag of salt in and fill it with RO, and uh, yeah. What um, what Try brand of salt do you use? Uh, reef crystals. Been using that pretty much the whole time. If it isn't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, so. no, that's true. I think um, sometimes you can kind of like get a little um, 
too into the weeds in terms of salt brands going back and forth. And um, I've always found in reef keeping that stability is, is good. So the less changes you make, the better. Um, but um, mm -hmm. yeah. So, so Tim, if you had to, um, you know, give advice to somebody that, you know, has been keeping SPS for a while and is not getting the great color and growth that they, you know, would really like, or maybe, you know, they've seen with somebody else that can get like what, what you can get with your tanks. What, what advice would you give somebody to, uh, to help them try to like get to the next level with SPS? Hmm. Well, I would say check on nutrients. Like I said, I didn't really watch them for a lot of years, and I think they definitely play a role. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've, I've never, for lighting, I haven't really messed around too much in terms of spectrum and whatnot. I've tried setting up a little prop tank with T5s on it and just was not happy after six months or a year and took them off and bought an LED fixture to put on it. Um, when you're used to one thing, it's kind of other things don't look quite right. Um, but yeah, start. You might want to raise your nutrients. I think people, I think people have drifted away from that ultra low nutrient system where you're trying to microdose everything, um, and that's probably a good thing. Trying to, and if you can increase your nutrients just with fish food and fish, I think that's probably your best plan. Uh, and even if you don't have the uh, ability to put all those fish in with the corals due to incompatibility or whatever, if you can add another tank. I actually do like keeping a lot of fish in one tank and not having a lot of fish in all the other ones because then in the, your propagation tanks, you get a lot more microfauna growing. And uh, I think those feed the corals, and then the corals are happy. So Mike Gray is asking a question of, of you, Tim, about um, lighting in terms of what you like to keep in terms of PAR. Do you, do you measure PAR? I do measure PAR, um, at least when I first set everything up. And I, there's a range. Um, a few of the things like to be absolutely fried, and you know, 700 par is not too mm. much for them. Most corals are not like that. Um, most of the acropora I keep are happy in the three to 500 range, or 350 to 450, 500 range. So yeah, that's pretty much what I target. Um, and that's like in that middle, in those newer acrylic tanks, you'll see there's two fixtures side by side, and that was to create that hot zone down the middle where I could experiment with things that like cranky millipore that just didn't seem to grow. And it was, uh, <laughs> that seemed to help with some of you for sure. When, when I talk, when I, I, we were talking before the show and I had um, Abe from Coral uh, Euphoria on. And, you know, one of the things that he does when, when he has a, um, an SPS that's not really doing much in terms of branching and, and, and growing, he, um, he'll clip branches. And I think he even <clears throat> will put the, um, the frag kind of like on the edge of something to kind of force it to grow. So almost like turning it on its side. Do you do any of that sort of thing to try yeah. to, you know, get SPS to kind of yeah. like get, get into gear and start growing? Now and then I've noticed like I had an old colony of a Disney junior that was honestly on its way out. Like I had another colony that was my backup that had gotten big and bushy and was growing actively. And I, I basically just chopped it all to bits and took any of the like algae was you know starting to encroach on it and it wasn't competing well so i just took all the good looking bits and cut them apart and stuck them on a tile and i had this big chunk that hadn't done anything but i just put it in about 700 par and i thought well this will either fry it and i'll be able to throw it away or it'll do something and it's actually turned it around wow. so um apparently that super intense lighting can do something i've had a couple other pieces and after seeing that i'm debating moving and trying the same thing um 
but yeah, you can definitely cut the tip off and see if you can get more branching out of it. Um, some of that micro fragging stuff that was going around has interesting implications. I think that's uh, definitely a valid tactic you could try. Um, little pieces. I usually try to do that if I can, is put multiple frags next to each other when I want to make a, a colony for propagation just to get it to size and shorter. People ask for big chunks. I'm like, can I send you multiples? Because one, the big chunks isn't going to ship that well. It's a really good chance it's just going to show up dead. And two, if you take multiple pieces and you put them together, you're going to have a colony quicker as soon as they hit each other. And you've got a backup in case one of the frags in a bag doesn't live. You know, you got two other pieces that have made yeah, the journey. Yeah, makes a lot of there, sense. So. Yeah, um, St. Nova mm -hmm. has made a comment that it's interesting. I think we want to get your thoughts on this. Um, he's saying that you keep par that high because – well, I guess the question is, are, are you um, with your higher nutrients? Is that how you can kind of get away with keeping the higher par? Um, you know, maybe 450 would fry stuff with lower nutrients. Any thoughts on that relationship? I guess there is, it, and it may not be fry so much as outstrip the growth will outstrip its resources. And so it could be that with my phosphates as high as they are, they need that in order to maintain that level of growth. Uh, over time. I mean, that's a constant level of, when I think about the amount of calcium adding to the system every month, that's a lot of coral. And I've, uh, some of the things, the faster growing things are just to the point now where I break off chunk. I broke off a chunk about this big off a of colony and it's mostly reactor media. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting to recycle there you go. Save a little calcium. money in reactor yeah. media. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Tim. Well, listen, man, it's, um, we've, uh, we're, we're, getting close to 815 here and I don't want to keep you much much longer I got a couple of uh, rapid fire questions though for you um, okay. do you have a dream tank or, or do you already have uh, a dream system <laughs> dream tank I would kind of like if my wife is watching this I would kind of like that we've got a big uh, peninsula upstairs that would make for a nice about seven foot long tank and I I do some someday it'd be nice to put all those fish in there and give them room to swim around like the Moorish Idol. I got a nasal tang that would like to stretch its legs. Um, but yeah, that'd be fun to set up, you know, a big long tank like that, maybe two feet wide, two, three feet wide, 30 inches and yeah, two feet deep. That sounds sweet. All right. Favorite SPS coral. If you had to pick one. <sighs> that is so hard. <laughs> yeah. Ask me on a given day. I do really like that Hung's uh, rainbow explosion or the Valentina that piece that's on the, it's a multicolored kind of smooth thing. I like the smooth things. BC Skinny Love's great. Um, fed that for a lot of years and has a big, beautiful colony. The corals that you can grow out and they still look as nice in the middle as they do at the edges. Um, really, really are choice corals. All right. And lastly, favorite fish. Favorite fish. It's hard. I did get a Moorish Idol recently, which is eating pellets like a wow. champ. And I've had it about six, eight months. Choose on Acropora a little bit, but I got enough that it doesn't bother. Um, that's a cool fish for sure. Um, I got a really nice little potter's angel too in the system. That's uh, one of my favorites. And the Majestic. That big Majestic's over 10 years old now. Looks as good as the day I bought him. Yeah, so. that's awesome. Or better. Uh, so, Tim, any, um, any final thoughts before we sign off here tonight? Uh, not really. I just appreciate... Uh, everybody's interest and I uh, hope I can help you out. If you have more questions, you can probably post them on that tank thread that's on reef to reef. Um, I've got a thread about my system that's been going for probably a couple of years now and you'll see a lot more photos like he showed you 
I've tried to up my photography game over the past couple of years and use an underwater camera. So, um, but yeah, shoot me a question there. I'd be happy to help. And, uh, yeah. And you, yeah. you guys could even, um, put questions in the comments, um, you know, after the, the live stream is done and, and, uh, you know, we can look at the, uh, monitor those comments as well. Um, so anyway, Tim, thank you again so much for, for being a guest. I really, really appreciate it. Hopefully we can have you on again uh, you know, next year at some point to, uh, to talk more. I love talking SPS with other uh, SPS nuts out there like myself. <laughs> All right. Oh, this is great. I appreciate it. So, right, yeah, so evening. folks, uh, thanks for tuning in. I'm going to have another show again in, um, in two Sundays. And actually, uh, Tim, you mentioned um, Adam from ba Battle Corals. He's going to be my guest on um, – Sunday, November 1st at 7 p.m. So it, um, it took a lot to get Adam to, to get onto the show here. He's a busy guy, but uh, I'm psyched to, to, to get him on, and, and uh, hopefully everybody will uh, tune in for that. It certainly will be a, uh, another great show. So with that, we're going to uh, sign off and, and say goodnight. Uh, everybody, thanks again for tuning in. Stay safe, be well, and we will uh, see you next